Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you guys do, then please turn to James 2. As we continue with a series of messages that we started several weeks ago and that we're calling God's Word and My Everyday Life, and I thought maybe the best way to start today would be to share with you a quote from Martin Luther about real and authentic and saving faith. Now, he uses the word religion, but he's talking about real faith as opposed to that which is not real, authentic faith as opposed to that which is not authentic, and saving faith as opposed to that which, well, doesn't save. And listen to what he says, because it's penetrating. He says, a religion or a faith that, now don't miss this, gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is ultimately worth how much? It's worth nothing. Let me read it again. He says, a religion or a faith that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is ultimately worth nothing. And why is that? Because bottom line, it's not real. It's not authentic and it isn't saving. How does it make you feel? Work it through. Real faith gives. That's what he's saying. That's what the Bible teaches too, by the way. It gives time. It gives money. It gives talents. It gives resources. It gives emotional energies. It gives in ways that, you know, just shock you at times. Real faith gives. As we are being transformed by real faith... By the Spirit of God and in accordance with the Word of Christ, more and more and more so into the image of Christ, does it not then make sense that the pattern of the generosity that we see in the life of Christ will begin to show up in my life and in yours as well? It it does make sense, doesn't it? That the one who had all and forsook all, he took upon himself our poverty, that through him we might be made spiritually wealthy, becomes the pattern of my life. Real faith gives. Real faith costs. It recognizes that Christ by His blood did not, as I've said repeatedly, purchase some small part of us, some tiny percentage of the big pie that is the whole of us, but instead that He came and with His precious blood purchased the whole of us, and that even as it was for the joy set before Him that Jesus paid the cost of the cross, it is before the joy set before us as well as we become more and more like Him that we then endure the cost of the cross and the demands of it upon us as well. And it demands of us. What does Jesus say? He says, if any man would follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. It is a costly faith. Now, we gain so much more than we ever give. But there is sacrifice involved. There is a dying to self that you might live to Christ. There is an emptying of me and an emptying of you that we might be then filled with Him. That's the idea. So real faith gives. Real faith costs. Real faith suffers. It occurred to me as Matt was talking in the introduction, and I didn't know exactly what it was that he was going to say, that the picture of those people who went into the buildings when everything should have said, go out, you know? They rushed in to save people really is a great illustration of who it is that we are freed to be in Jesus. Think about the disciples. Think about the Christian martyrs throughout the centuries. Think about those people who literally gave their lives. Why were they free to do that? Well, in the apostles' case, it's because they had seen a man who had conquered death. 
And in everyone else's case, it's because they believed in a man who conquered death. Not even death would prevent them from doing what they were called to do. We can give ourselves away in every sense of that phrase because our security is in Him, our fullness is in Him, our life even is in Him. And suffering, therefore, is not something we should be afraid of. It shouldn't be the thing that makes us go, ah, you know, I don't know. Real faith suffers. It suffers the indignity that is ours when we identify with Jesus, when we publicly say, you know what, I belong to Him and I follow Him. It suffers the indignity of that. It suffers the uncomfortable, awkward moments that are ours when we have to speak about Christ to people who need to speak about Christ because their whole life is like a burning building that's going to implode. But it's awkward, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. Real faith gives. Real faith costs. Real faith suffers, but it suffers in the knowledge that the sufferings of the followers of Jesus follow also the pattern of the sufferings of Jesus. And what is that pattern? There is suffering, and then there is glory. It ends in glory. That's the imagination of Paul. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read about his sufferings, but they're profound. And he speaks of them then as light and momentary afflictions. You know, you read the list and you think, this guy's nuts. But what he's saying is they're light and momentary afflictions. They're almost not even worth bringing up, he's saying, in light of the glory that will yet be revealed as a result of my sufferings. So Luther comes to us and he says, all right, here's the deal. A religion or a faith that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is ultimately worth nothing because it's not real, it's not authentic, and it is not a genuinely saving faith. And if you've been hanging with us for the past few weeks and, you know, coming back still, which is somewhat surprising, you know that that's exactly what James has been saying to us now. Week by week, message by message, time and again, he's come and he's spoken so directly and he's going to do it again today. Why? Because this is not a, a... you know, a subject you want to trifle with. It's serious. And he's saying things like real Christians are brand new creatures. Hear that language that God by the Holy Spirit and through his word literally brings to life from the dead. And then who live like people who have been brought to life from the dead. New life brings a new kind of life. And if nothing new ever shows up in your life, I mean, nothing, zero, nada, then there's no new life to begin with. He's come to us as well. And he said, when God's word takes root, it brings forth fruit. And you know, I mean, that's so cool that it even rhymes. It's like if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. But it's not Johnny Cochran. It's the Lord God coming to us through this man, James. And he's saying, hey, you know what? When my word really and truly takes root in your heart, it really and truly and always brings forth fruit in your life. And as we've talked about, it may bring forth a lot of fruit, or it might be one tiny kind of withered-looking orange hanging off a scraggly branch. But if there is no fruit, there is, well, no root. All right, last one of many. Real followers of Jesus really follow Jesus. They don't follow Him perfectly. They don't follow Him consistently, do we? We step off the path, we take major detours. Every once in a while, he comes to us and says, okay, you know that whole pie that I've claimed with my blood, but that you have not yet fully surrendered to me? Here's the next piece I want. 
And it stops us dead in our tracks at times, doesn't it? It's like, you know. But here's what we don't do. We don't claim to be a follower of Jesus and then never do it. Never follow Jesus. Create a path for ourselves in life that never intersects with His, and we don't even really feel the tension of that. Real followers of Jesus really follow Jesus. Let me summarize it this way, and this is the, these are the statements we've heard the last couple of times we've gotten together. James comes to us in chapter 1, and in part he says this, real Christians don't just listen to God's Word, they also do it. Their real faith brings forth real action in response to the real directives of God's Word. So real Christians, as opposed to people who just think that they might be or profess that they are with their mouths, watch that today, but then don't do anything. No, real Christians don't just listen to God's Word. They also do it again, not perfectly, but you get the idea. And then at the first part of chapter 2 that we're going to finish today, James came to us and he stepped into our everyday lives and he just started gathering up the poor. He gathered up the poor in our family. He gathered up the poor in our office. He gathered up the poor down the street, you know, at our school. He gathered up the poor in our community, in our city. He gathered up the poor in our world. And it's like he holds them all before us as the litmus test, quite frankly, of real faith. And he says, okay, here's what real faith looks like when it expresses itself. It does what God's Word says to do, that is, in regard to the poor. He says, real faith expresses itself in practical, loving acts of mercy toward the poor. And that's where we left off last time. And that is exactly where we're going to pick it up again today, with James still standing there with the poor in his hands, talking to us about the reality of true faith. James 2, verse 14, he says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? So he claims to have faith with his mouth but does not have works to back up his claim to faith. And then he asks not just a question, but he asks the question. He says, can that faith save him? Translation, can you be a new creature and yet have nothing new show up in your life? Can God's Word really and truly take root in your heart and produce zero, nothing, nada, no fruit at all in your life? Can you be a follower of Jesus who absolutely never follows Jesus? Or to put it differently... Can you be a real Christian and never do what God's Word says to do in regards to the poor? Never. And don't miss the fact that that's the illustration that he uses. The Bible is very serious about the poor. Again, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says with his mouth that he has faith, but he does not have works to back up that claim to faith? Can that faith save him? Is that real faith? Is it authentic faith? Is it saving faith? And now again with the poor in his hands, look at what he says. He says, for if a brother or sister, that is to say a fellow believer in Jesus, one in whom Christ resides, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you what? Because there's a pattern. One of you says with your mouth... To them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, you know, because you can't avoid them in the hallway without doing anything to help them, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And I mean, any honest person would look at that and go, man, that's just no good at all. It would be better not to say anything. Don't even let them know that you're a believer, maybe. Or are you? 
You see how it works? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works to back up that claim to faith? Can that faith save him? Oh, I don't know. Let's look at this illustration. For if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without also giving them the things needed for the body, doing something to back up the professed concern that you have. What good is that? He says, so also faith that you claim to have with your mouth, but that is by itself, if it does not have works to back up that claim, is not a sick faith. It's not a weak faith. It's not on life support. It is gone. It's dead. So can you be a new creature without having anything new at all show up in your life ever? No, you can't. Can God's Word really and truly take root in your heart and bring forth nothing in your life? No, it can't. Can you be a follower of Jesus who never follows Jesus? No, you can't. Can you be a real Christian and never do what God's Word says at all in any respect in regards to the poor? No, you can't. And not only does James say it, so does Jesus. Listen to Matthew 25, verse 31. This is so penetrating. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Parenthetically, what happens when Jesus returns? Judgment, right? Just throw that out there. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Here comes the final judgment. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, so you can imagine it, and He will do what with them? He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And then the King, that's the Lord Christ, will say to those on His right, this is awesome, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I mean, look, if God created the world in six days, how cool is the next one going to be? Come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. I mean, the Lord has spent a lot of time on this one, but why? For you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I want to pause and say this group of people were in fact saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But how do you know that? What is the evidence of that? What does the Lord say? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and they're incredulous. It's like, what? Really? Saying, Lord, and here it is, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Now, we did that for other people, but you? Or thirsty and give you drink. I mean, I, you know, there was this crowd and we did, but you? And when did we see you a stranger and, and, and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and, and visit you? I mean, other people we get, Lord, but you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Not a lot of sermons on this one. Because you people are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, even though you might profess to be. And here's how you know. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer with great incredulity. Like, what are you talking about? Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison for that matter, and did not minister to you. I mean, look, we walked by a lot of other people, but we did not walk by you, did we? Well, what's his answer? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, into that eternal world that God has been preparing since before the foundation of this one. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I've said that in every one of these messages because I just don't want that to get confused. Now, the gospel comes to us and it takes anything that we might do to try to gain the favor of God and earn our way into, you know, the sheepfold here as opposed to the goat fold, and it grinds it to dust, crushes it utterly, and does away with it completely. It says nothing you can do can earn the favor of God. Nothing you can do can make you one of His sheep. Only Christ can do that. The God-man who lived the perfect life that God requires of us. Only He can make us holy enough to be in the presence of the Lord God. And so we run to Him in faith, but He's saying if you've really run to Him, if you've really been made new, if He's really taken root in your heart, if you really are His follower, then your heart is going to become progressively more and more like His, and your faith is going to start looking more and more like the life that he lived, if you will. And you will find it increasingly difficult to not feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked and visit the sick and the poor, particularly when they're God's people. He's saying, in a sense, you know, the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that cannot ignore the needs of God's people any more than we could ignore literally the needs of Jesus Christ if He was to come in here poorly dressed and underfed. So James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says with his mouth that he has faith but does not have works to back up his claim with his life? Can that faith save him? Well, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them with your mouth, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without also doing something to help them, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's useless. So also, faith by itself, he says, if it does not have works to back up that reality, is not sick or weak or on life support, it doesn't exist. He says it's dead. Bottom line, real faith expresses itself in practical, loving acts of mercy toward the poor. And I know that you want to come along and go, yeah, but only toward poor believers. 
So let's take that and narrow it down a little bit because I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed, and I understand that, believe me. And it's true, I think, that Jesus speaks specifically of brothers and sisters, doesn't he? And James uses that same language, and so we need to notice that and point that out. But I think that the heart that wants to narrow it to that crowd is kind of like the heart of the guy that came to Jesus just before he laid down the Good Samaritan and said, okay, Lord, you know, what are the greatest commandments? And what did the Lord say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And the guy was feeling the weight of that and wanted to narrow it down. And he said, okay, who's my neighbor? because I'm looking for you to say to me, it's my fellow Jewish person. It's somebody who looks like me and believes like me. And, and then the Lord lays down the Good Samaritan. He says, no, actually your neighbor is whoever it is that the Lord puts in your path who finds themselves in need. So keep that in mind. He continues in verse 18. He says, but some will say, which means, by the way, that he knows that we're going to want to argue with this, and he already knows the argument. Darn. He's going to shoot it down, okay? He says, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. He's saying, some of you are going to want to say you can have faith all by itself that never finds any expression at all in your life. And here's his response. He says, okay, well, if that's what you want to say, then show me your faith apart from your works. Go ahead, do it, I dare you. It's impossible, isn't it? And he knows that. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And it won't be hard for me to do, because it just happens organically. It's like a tree that produces fruit. You know, the tree in your backyard, maybe, if you've got a fruit tree, doesn't sit there, you know, kind of like, straining to produce an orange. It's an orange tree. It just produces orange. He's like, look, it's not hard for me to go, all right, you show me your faith by your works. That's going to be a short conversation. Okay, good, we're done with that one. Okay, now, you know, I can show you my faith by my works because it's transformed me. As I become more like Jesus, I become more like Jesus. And I'm advancing and can see that. And big and, you know, sometimes little ways. And then he taps into the Jewish roots of his original audience that he's writing to. And he says this, he says, you, meaning you people who think that you can have a living faith that produces no life. He says, you believe that God is one. Now, what is that? That is monotheism. That's one of the tenets of of Judaism. It's the Shema is what they call it. It's something they would have said every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, you believe that God is one, and then he commends them. He says, and you do well. That's good. Your theology is good on that, but don't get too excited about it, because then he says, and here comes the blunt side, even the demons believe and shudder. He's saying, look, it's important to have good theology, to possess great theological understanding is an awesome thing, but only if it possesses you as well. If it never makes the journey from your head into your heart and then out into your life, then your theological knowledge is doing you no more good than than the theological knowledge of the demons who, frankly, probably know far more than we do. And then he takes the gloves off. 
in case that wasn't bare knuckle already. And he says, do you want to be shown? And then he calls you a name, but only if you're disagreeing with him. So keep that in mind. He says, you foolish person, that faith apart from works, that is to say, a faith that does not bring forth works, is useless. It's like saying to the starving guy, hey, be well fed, and not helping him. And he calls to mind the example of Abraham. It's a very complicated passage of Scripture. I'm going to kind of annotate it as we go to help you understand what it is that he's saying. But he calls to mind two events in the life of Abraham, and it's important that you understand where in the life of Abraham these two events take place relative to one another. He says, was not, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, be careful. What he's saying is when you contextualize it within the context of this whole letter, he's talking about by a faith that shows up in works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, which, by the way, takes place in Genesis 22. So mark that. You see, he says, that faith of Abraham was what? It was active along with his works, and the faith was completed or it was perfected or it was matured by his works. He grew as he put his faith into action. It was matured by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled, but what Scripture? The Scripture in Genesis 15. See that? That says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. I'm sorry, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham worked really hard, became a good person, fed a lot of hungry people, gave drink to some thirsty folks, you know, refused to walk by somebody in need, and therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. No, we can't earn our salvation. It's all by faith. Abraham believed God. And here's what it also doesn't say. It also doesn't say Abraham believed God, and that wasn't quite enough. So then he went out and did a bunch of good works... And therefore, it was counted... No, it just says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What he's saying is that Abraham came to true and saving faith in God in Genesis 15. And then if you know that story of Abraham, that faith started showing up in his life in little and big ways. And sometimes he succeeded hugely by it. And sometimes he failed so miserably that you wonder, my goodness, you know, this must truly be the Word of God because otherwise this wouldn't be in here. But in either case, he grew, he matured, he developed until the ultimate expression of his faith came in Genesis 22 when the Lord God came to him and said, I want you to take the most precious thing in your life for a thousand reasons, your son, and take him to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you when you get there. What does Abraham do? He gets up and chops the wood, doesn't he? He takes the knife. He, he brings the fire with him. He doesn't know what mountain God's going to choose, and he doesn't know if when he gets there, there's going to be any wood to do it. So he's leaving no chance for this thing to get screwed up. There is no way he's not going to do it. And he, he goes all the way there. On the third day, lays his son down on the altar. And God spares His hand, but the point is that that is the single greatest expression of the reality of the Genesis 15 faith of Abraham, a faith that showed up in his life. Verse 24, you see, he says that a person is justified by works and not by faith, but then here's the key word, alone. 
The idea is you're justified by a faith that shows up and works, that makes a difference in your life. New creatures live like new creatures. When God's Word takes root, it brings forth fruit. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus, or to put it differently, he says real Christians don't just listen to God's Word, they also do it. And as it regards the poor, here's what it looks like. It expresses itself in practical loving acts of mercy toward the poor, which I think is why he closes with this final illustration of Rahab. In verse 25, he says, And in the same way, meaning in the same way that Abraham was justified by a faith that showed up in his life, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, that is to say, by a faith that showed up in her life in the form of works. That's the idea. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, then he says it again in closing. He said, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is sick, weak, no dead. So he closes with Rahab. Which is kind of interesting. If you know the story of Rahab, and he told you already that she's a prostitute, so it's intriguing, right? Right from the start, she was a Canaanite prostitute. She lived in the city of Jericho, and Jericho is located just above the Dead Sea. And those of you who have been on the Israel trips that we've done know exactly where that is. And you can see the geography in your mind, and you can understand why that city was so critical to the entirety of the land of Canaan. It was a fortress city that was built in such a way as to literally guard entrance to the land from this particular location. And it was the first place that Joshua and the Israelites, once they crossed over the Jordan River, right above the Dead Sea, the same place Jesus is baptized, once they crossed over and came up into the land, they had to fight this city. It's the single greatest victory of Joshua. But before they crossed the Jordan and came up against it, they sent in a couple of spies, you know, to do a little recon and bring back a little intel. And these guys went into the city, and it became known to the king of the city of Jericho that these guys were in the city. And so he slammed the gates shut, and he sent out the CIA and the FBI and the local police department to hunt these guys down and to kill them before they left with information that might make them vulnerable. So these guys are in desperate need. I mean, it's life and death. And they just figured, well, if there's one place we can hide, I guess it's in the house of a prostitute. And so they went to the house of a prostitute. And what they found in this prostitute is a woman of faith. She had come through the stories that she had heard about the God of Israel to a saving knowledge in the God of Israel. And she makes a great profession of her faith, if you know that story, in that story. But not only does she profess that faith with her mouth, she then expresses that professed faith. How? By saving two people in really desperate need by helping these guys escape. Real Christians don't just listen to God's Word, they do what it says. Not perfectly, not always. Please hear that. And when we do what it says in regards to the poor, here's what it looks like. Practical, loving acts of mercy toward the poor. We're like Rahab, and that's a good thing. Well, as I've shared with you guys a couple of times now, when we finish up this study of the book of James, and that's not going to be really until almost the end of next month, Um, we've got a ways to go. We're going to pour into a new series that's going to be five weeks long that we're calling Leverage Your Life, God's Word and Generous Living. 
and in which, as I've said, we're going to come around and encourage one another to take all the various components and pieces of our lives, you know, the whole pie as opposed to the little sliver, and to put it all on the table and to say, okay, Lord, now what? You know, I mean, what do you want to do with this? What does real faith in my life look like? What's that next step for me? How can I leverage all that you've given to me, time, talents, treasure, the whole of it, for the building of your eternal kingdom in this world? How do I do that? And as I've also said, one part of the greater ask, it's one component of a bigger conversation, is what we're going to call the Rio House. We feel like we've got an opportunity to build a fiveplex. You know what that means? A fiveplex, okay, for homeless single moms in Broward County that will uniquely position us um, not just to provide them housing, but to provide them loving community, hopefully for decades. We think that it can be transformational, and it's something that we're doing for them and not us. And so I want to give you three Leverage Your Life challenges today. It's in your notes, it's in the study guide. But challenge number one, next Sunday night, 7 o'clock, come here. Because next Sunday night at 7 o'clock, and we're inviting everybody to come, we're going to share with you the vision of the Leverage Your Life series, and we're going to roll out the Rio House in detail. Sketches, drawings, all of that kind of stuff, explanation. You know, we want to answer your questions. The idea is by the time we get to leverage your life, we want everybody to already fully understand sort of all of the components and what it's about and what we want to focus on in that season is the teaching. So be here next Sunday night, 7 o'clock. Number two, between now and November 20, so that's 10 weeks to get this done. Go do what I did with my community group last Thursday night. Go to Hope South, Florida. You can go on a Monday, on a Thursday. I think they got another day, some other time of the week that you can do it off campus there. But go and serve a meal to the homeless in this community. Go as an individual. Go as a group. Go as a family. But physically go down there and do that. You've got 10 weeks to complete that assignment. Number three, as we move toward Leverage Your Life, and even as we move through it, Time, every once in a while, we're going to roll out a testimony of somebody in this congregation who's already doing it. We did that a couple of weeks ago with Mo Bellio, and he got up and talked to you about the journey that he and Tracy have been on, where they've recognized they have debt, and they felt like God's saying, all right, sell your house and pay your debt. And if you sell your house and pay your debt and reduce your housing expenses, then you, Mo, who's self-employed, can go from having to earn this much money and having to work this much professionally each year to having to earn this much money and having to work this much professionally each year. And you can either take the time, the delta there, and use that to invest more in building the kingdom of God and using your gifts and talents in that regard, or you can work more still and give more and invest more in the kingdom of God or some combination of both. That's leveraging your life. That's living for a different world. And today, I want you to hear another testimony. And it's the testimony of Sharon Parks and Amaret Hanna and how they leveraged their lives uh, in aid of the poor in Honduras. And they're going to tell you their story uh, here in a second. But here's the challenge. Testimony by testimony, week by week, the challenge is not to come up to them afterwards and go, hey, you did a nice job, you know, and wow, that's so cool what God did through you. The challenge is to begin to evaluate our own lives and to say, okay, what can I do? What would God do through me? 
A religion or a faith that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is ultimately worth nothing. But a religion or a faith that joyfully gives, pays, sacrifices, and even suffers, it runs into the burning buildings in our lives and in the lives of those around us, is worth everything. And it ends in glory. We want to be a people who prove the reality of our faith by the way that we live. Okay? So I'm going to pray, and these guys are going to come up, and they're going to talk to you. Father, we thank you um, for the faith that you do give. God, we thank you for our Savior, Lord, who lived and who died and who rose victoriously over death for us. God, we thank you for the safety that is ours no matter what life throws at us through faith in Him. And we thank you that He does not then leave us idle but He seeks to transform us, that He gives us a mission worthy of the whole of our lives, that He gives us the privilege of being used. Call us to that kind of a faith. Lord, make us that kind of a people and do it for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.